Bangily bang, it's me, Randy Newman, and I love to sing a song about a podcast. Actionable, Chris. Let's move on. our podcast this week we will interview them on the beaches we will interview them in hotel rooms we will interview them in pod booths and by them of course I mean Joe Wright director of Darkest Hour and Martin McDonough director of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri all that and more on the movie podcast that doesn't think Gary Oldman sounds anything like Churchill he didn't even get the oh yes bit right just an amateur an amateur hello pod I'm Chris Hewitt Welcome to the second Empire Podcast of 2018. I'll be honest, I need a break. I'm shattered. You are? I, I, I need a holiday. I need a holiday. I've just had one, I know. you just but, had one, yeah. Ah, this year's just been draining. Draining. <laughs> it's the 11th of January, Chris. When's it over? Uh, the 31st of December. <sighs> anyway, this week I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. And before you ask, don't worry, they are both receiving equal pay for this. Uh, I.e. I. none, yeah. Yes. Uh, I can't comment, though, on what they'll be paid if we have to drag them back in for an expensive re-record. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Hello. And James Dyer. Hello. We have a question, and this comes from Twitter, and it is from at Tanya underscore... Now, I'm going to pronounce this knees but it might be nice or it might be nice. I'm, I'm assuming this is a, a, a Dutch surname. So I do not know how to pronounce it. So Tanya, write in if we got it wrong. Right, so Tanya asks, with the fabulous bar scene in The Greatest Showman. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are your favourite bar scenes in movies? Now, if you haven't seen The Greatest Showman, there is a bar scene. Uh, there's it's, a, a sort of, it's a sort of romantic scene, isn't it, between Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron? Yeah, it's almost like they're, they're meet-cute, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah, it's, but yeah, it's their sort of... Um, between two straight guys and... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just mean there's an energy in the film. Mm, anyway. Yes. There, there, there's an energy at that scene... At the, by the end of it because it, it is a seduction scene it's a seduction scene Hugh Jackman is trying to woo Zac Efron to, to Be- become his business partner dip into his big man purse no what and fund Hugh Jackman's big top <laughs> okay that's what I took from it sure right they're flirting melodically with each other and then by the end of it you're thinking are they going to kiss at the they end should, of the they should have kissed they should have kissed they should have kissed it would have maybe deviated from the, the story of P.T. Barnum, but they were already doing that anyway, so why not? Sure. Sure. Anyway, it's a really fun scene, and it is a good song. Sure. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah. so Tanya's question is, what are your favourite bar scenes in movies? And I started to even put together like the, the smallest list, like the things that just popped into my head. Yeah. Mm. And this is a big That's old a category. huge category, yeah. We could be here for some time. Raiders of the Lost Ark just popped into my head, mm-hmm. actually, and uh, and that's probably good shout. The prologue. Yeah. yeah. Mm. No. 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 The. Um, oh. What? The prologue. prologue. Yeah. Is it the prologue? Well, I don't know. It depends. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, it's been a while. You know, the, with with the burning of the hand and yeah. the bar. Yeah. That's not like the prologue. Oh like, no! You're sorry, sorry, sorry. I, yeah. yeah, you're right. It's not a prologue. It's the beginning. The prologue is, of course, the idol. Yes, yeah. I know that. I'm. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's early in the film. It, it's about yeah. twenty five minutes in, so it's. It, I can see how you would confuse it with the beginning of the. Well, movie. I get confused. What can I tell you? 
But yeah, it's it's amazing. It's a it's a great, great, great character introduction for Marion. Yes. It's a brilliant way to set up their relationship. It establishes your villain and how villainous he is. It has a little, you know, funny twist in it. It's just great. Yeah. I like that scene. Mm. I like that scene a lot. Better than the bar in the actual prologue of Temple of Doom. Oh no, that's amazing. But that's is a, that a bar or a is it more club. of a nightclub? Oh it is club Super it dumb. is club Obi Wan. Yes. After all. Um, I'm going to throw a left field choice in here and say uh, the scene in The Guest with the fireball. Remember when he orders the fireball drink, which I can't remember what the spirit is, but it's got cinnamon in it and it's presumably quite hot when thrown in your face. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yes. Oh, and then he takes out the guys, doesn't yes. he? Yes. Yes, that's a very Marvelous. good scene. That's a good scene. Anything else? Uh, well, you know. Um, Desperado weirdly came to my mind, which oh, is yes. the first time in a long time, but... There's a great fight scene in a bar there. Yes, the uh, the musical number where he does a uh, Cancion del Mariachi. As well. Yes, very good, very good. Suppose... Didn't you once talk a mariachi aisle into playing that for us in the office? <laughs> I did, and that is every word of that is literally true. <laughs> I requested that particular song from a mariachi owl, who then, along with her owl colleagues, performed it for me. <laughs> it was. Uh, this it's just was, another normal day in the Empire office. This was, of course, a jobbing actor in a suit rather than an yeah, actual it was, owl. It was, as I recall, it was it was some sort of uh, promotional thing for Rango, where for Mariachi people. No, actually, it wasn't it? Was a Mariachi it was a, band and then Mari- four dancing owls, yes, wasn't it? Who were who were dressed as Mariachi, yeah. but they obviously they hampered by the owl suits were not unable to play the instruments. Indeed. Yes, but I requested that song from Desperado, and they were just. They knew ripped it. into it, yeah, they it's did. Great. It's good. I mean, I think it's quite a famous song, to be fair. I don't think okay. it's, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one to have in your repertoire if you are a mariachi. Yeah. Uh, anything else? There's uh, loads. I've yes, got loads written so down many. here. Moss Eisley. Let's chuck out the Star Wars Cantina. That's a bar. It is a bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a great scene. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the uh, equivalent scene in Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yes, with, you do. Uh, <laughs> Lee's Bagano. Want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. Want to go home and rethink your life? You wish to go home and rethink your life. Rethink your review. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go yeah. home and rethink my review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was totally Jedi mind tricked. I was thinking about that, that again today. Ah, oh, such regret. <laughs> Deep regret. Because, you know, Last Jedi is so much about failure and learning from your failures. <laughs> have you? No. No. <laughs> I don't think no. I have. No, you haven't. No. Uh, but the, the, uh, the Withnail scene, I think, still, still stands up, especially because it's set in the 60s, and especially yeah. because it is very, very reflective of 60s mindsets. And uh, it has some amazing lines. You know, if you, if you, I have a heart condition. If you, if, you, if you hit me, it will be murder. <laughs> I called your friend a ponce, and now I'm calling you a ponce. It's so good. It it's is. so good. I, I I just go through my list because my God, Casablanca, uh, Ice Cold, and Alex. If we want to, coming have up another it's classic a one in there as well. Sixtieth anniversary. Is 70th? it? Yeah. Is it? Nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah. I believe. Very end Wait, of the film. Wait, wouldn't that be seventy? Ah, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Mathematicians, maybe. Probably people with calculators. <laughs> who knows? Um, Jessica Rabbit's introduction at the Ink and Paint Club. Yeah, That's... again a club though. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That is a club. But is there a bar? Yes. <laughs> All right. I mean, but then there's a bar in Club Obi Wan, and you just. But does he go to the bar in Club Obi Wan? No, they come to him. Right. Okay. 
So I'm saying that. But they that's... also, but Betty Boop serves him in in the Ink and Paint Club, so he doesn't go to the bar there either. That's All right, true. It's okay. table service. All right, let's take let's take that aside. That's that's Jettison, uh, who from Roger Rabbit. That's gone. Damn you! I'm gonna How I'm gonna throw you. in another one again. It, uh, unfortunately, titled "The Titty Twister" from <laughs> Dust Till Dawn, because obviously that is basically the second half of the whole movie set in that bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, after the prologue, you mean? Yeah. After after the prologue, which of course stretches for the first ninety minutes. <laughs> uh, yes, that one. Have we not mentioned Gremlins? Oh, yes, oh, yes, yeah. yes. Phoebe Kate's serving bar, yeah, taking pictures. The, the flasher Gremlin. <laughs> Indeed. Which raises Again, so many questions. Brilliantly. Uh, yeah, it does. It's Since a they're, they're basically without genitals, that's not how they reproduce. So I'm yeah. not sure what it was so showing what, what off. It, what is he flashing? It's hard to say. Yeah, well, it's mm. true of many flashes. <laughs> maybe Gremlins' tadges are tucked away. But no. it's, maybe it's a bit of a Buffalo Bill Please situation let us going on. Never have this Perhaps it's, again. it's enclosed in a kind of shape of water type fashion. No, again, let's just stop there. <laughs> Perhaps a protective sheath. No, is, is you, no, no. Okay. No. Wow. So there's Gremlins. That's a great scene. Uh, Forty-eight hours. There's a great oh, scene. In oh, there. That yeah is a phenomenal scene. Uh, almost entirely improvised by Eddie Murphy. Was it improvised? Uh, yes. Uh, he um, uh, originally he was supposed to be going into. Uh, it was a black bar, and he was going in to talk to the people in the bar. He was black, and that was the whole thing that he would speak to them in God only knows what way. That would have been horrendous. But they decided, no, no, let's make it a redneck bar and just let him do his thing. Uh, and I think it made them very nervous. Like they thought it was, uh, they were very concerned about the material, but it became like the standout scene in the film. Like it went down a storm. And it is very, very good. It's in many ways, Eddie Murphy is his best, that uh, when he's just completely unfettered, unrestrained. Mm. Love it. That reminds me of the uh, Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. where they go to perform also in a redneck bar. Yes, they mm-hmm. do. Um, where they play both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> um, and uh, and yes, they have to improvise somewhat to match their playlist. To I just play Raw Hide and Stand By Your Man. Hide, <laughs> stand by over and over again. Exactly. What's the name of the bar slash pub in The Fellowship of the Ring? Uh, the Green Dragon. The Green Dragon. Prancing Pony? Prancing Pony? Oh, I think in The Prancing Pony. Yeah, the, bigger, the, bigger, the bigger scene mm, is in The Prancing mm, Pony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. There's that. But it's a pub. Pub, not a bar. The pubs are fine. Oh, but clubs aren't. You fascist. <laughs> pubs well, are a bar. If pubs are allowed, then slaughtered lamb, presumably. Slaughtered exactly. lamb. Yeah, there you go. Pubs. Yeah. The Winchester. The Winchester. Well, the entire Cornetto trilogy uh, has great scenes set in, in bars. Mm. Um, I believe there's a couple of pubs in the world's end. I don't know. Uh, one or two. No more than like nine. <laughs> anyway. Can you name, off the top of your head, without looking it up, how many of the pubs in the world's end can you name? The world's, the world's end. end. Um, there was one with twins. There was one with like or two, something with two in it. You've got a T-shirt with them all on. I do, and I can't remember any of them. Oh God, this is like um, there was they... one with a dog. It, it related There's to things that happened. Dog. It related to things that happened in the film. I'm vaguely remembering. Oh Jesus! There's the uh, oh God. Uh huh. Don't listen to this, Edgar Wright. <laughs> That's for sure. There's the World's End. That's brilliant. Thank you, Chris. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Mermaid. Right. There's the two-headed dog. See, two-headed dog. Okay. There's the famous cock. Because he walks in and he gets barred. Right. Right. There's the... That's four. It's amazing. Right. amazing. We're doing well. We're doing well. All right. So then there's there's uh, eight others. Great. Is the House of Blue Leaves technically a bar? No. Or is it like a... Tea house. It's a tea house. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm not, I'm not accepting that. Fine. Sorry, out Whatever. it goes. Out it goes. Um, While well, we're desperately trying to remember the rest of the pubs, <laughs> I used to know them off by heart. Mm. Such a shame. Is this because my memory's going now? 
Yes. Heather, is it going? <laughs> no, no. Calvin, you're fine. Calvin! <laughs> Jesus. Top improv. Top thank improv you, going you. on here. <laughs> um, so we've got an American Werewolf in London. That's an amazing scene. With Nell, Casablanca, Ice Cold and Alex. There's just a list I'd, I'd written down. The Shining. It's a great scene in the bar. The mm, Shining yeah. with, uh, with uh, Lloyd, the imaginary barman. Mm-hmm. Three Amigos. It's great because I was thinking Western saloons. There's always great scenes in Westerns. And the one that really popped into my head was My Little Buttercup. When the three amigos... <laughs> Has the sweetest smile. <laughs> when they go to this bar and they're mistaken for ice cold killers and everyone's <laughs> terrified of them and then they perform the most dainty little musical number you've ever heard. <laughs> it's a lovely song, that. It's such great. a lovely song. And one of my favourite moments in that is <laughs> they see the piano and Chevy Chase, they go, um, they said to Chevy, who's Chevy Chase playing that one? My God, my mind. There's Dusty so, Rhodes, Ned Niederlander. He's Lucky Day, isn't he? Lucky che- Day. Chevy's lucky, yeah, lucky Day. And Martin Short is Ned Niederlander yeah. and Steve Martin's Dusty Rhodes. People are going to write in and tell us that's wrong. If you're going to do so, please tell us the other eight pubs in the world's <laughs> end as well. That'd be great. And it goes, oh, there's a piano over there, Lucky. And he's going, oh, I, I don't know how to play that thing. And he's already walking over to it. It's just, it's a beautiful little touch. I love it. Um, speaking of great comedies with, with bars, I have to mention Top Secret. Oh. Because not only is there a bar fight in Top Secret, it is set underwater. <laughs> underwater. <laughs> it's an amazing it's, it's sequence. It's a full saloon bar underwater. For no reason. <laughs> you know this film, Jimbo? I have never seen Top Secret. What? I have There's genuinely... No... It's not really my sense of humour. Nothing is your sense yeah, of humour. Uh, oh, oh Aaron Sorkin did a pass on it. You should, oh, you should give it a go. I absolutely get it out It's a four-star masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, there's an amazing sequence where uh, Nick Rivers, our hero, <laughs> played by Val Kilmer, uh, is battling Nigel, a.k.a. the Torch, the Tarsh. And uh, they fall, they're fighting on this thing in a very uh, silent movie parody way. And they fall into a river and they continue their fight underwater. And then slowly but surely, they begin to encounter a an underwater saloon that's just it's just there for no reason complete with a bartender who smashes the uh, the torch over the head with an under, with a bottle people playing poker at a table which obviously gets overturned, <laughs> gets overturned. the cards float everywhere and he, and he has to stride out through the swinging doors the swinging at the end well, it, even though there's, there's no ceiling a chandelier that is. <laughs> it does sound hilarious oh come on <laughs> You old curmudgeon, you're ridiculous. Um, and the last two had written down here are Goodfellas, because yep. Billy Batson yep, yep. at the beginning gets gets killed uh, in or gets stabbed at least in the um, mm. in the bar, or punched and kicked and, and shoved, maybe not stabbed. And then Glorious Bastards is that great scene in the uh, in the bar as well with Michael Fassbender and yeah, yeah failing to order drinks the right way. Uh oh. <gasps> Uh oh! Is that is that a real thing, or is that one of those Quentin Tarantino affectations? I assume it's a real thing. I don't know. If you're German, please tell us how you count to three on your fingers. There's a lot of stuff for people to remember to write in about from this segment. <laughs> but okay, so if you are German and you know the correct way to order drinks in Germany, write in and tell us if, if Quentin Tarantino got that right. Write in with the other eight names of the pubs in the world's end. I will endeavour to remember those during the course of the podcast. And what was the other one? I think that was it, wasn't it? There was one other one, but okay. who knows? Who knows? Anyway. Oh, if you're if we're wrong about Dusty Roads and Lucky Day. Which we probably are. So if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, and let's face it, why wouldn't you? Uh, you can do so by a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And you can email us as well at podcast at empireonline.com. Com. Correct. That's right. Thank you. Forgot there for a second. And hey, also, if you want to ask us questions in the flesh... 
you can do so at our 300th episode, which is being recorded live on Valentine's Day, February 14th, in case you don't know when that is. Apparently it's also Ash Wednesday this year, so if you're you know planning to is go it? on stuff for Lent, that's the day to start. Oh, amazing. So we'll get Bruce Campbell along to that as well. So anyway, we're doing a live show at the King's Place on February 14th. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have some star guests. It's going to be fun, lots of fun doing the usual stuff and tickets are on sale right now just £12.50 for a ticket uh, at King's Place www. someone wrote in and said I only do www oh, so I'm going to be very very clear www.kingsplace.co.uk is the is the address if you want to get that that right and while we're doing some housekeeping I might as well tell you that the last Jedi Sporter special is happening it has been recorded just have to edit the thing it'll be up on Monday January 15th so just in time for the movie's um, airplane release <laughs> and then our Blade Runner 2049 spoiler special will be out on February 5th to tie in with the DVD and Blu-ray release yeah, of we, we should film. probably do that one we should record that at some point point. Yeah. these are exciting times they're a great time to be alive and you know what it's an even better time to be alive if you, if you like Joe Wright who is our first guest this week <laughs> seamless uh, seamless segue wow yeah amazing uh, he is the director, of course, of Atonement, Pride and Prejudice. Hannah, Anna Karinina, uh, had a slight misstep. I think it's fair to say. You all right there, Helen? Dribbling water down yourself? Yeah, it was um, overfull. Okay. Uh, he had a slight misstep. I think it's fair to say with his last film, Pan, which was... Pan? Oh, that's it. That's the <laughs> word I was looking for. Thank you. Only I can think of the right word. Thank God you're here, Jimbo. Uh, needless <laughs> to say, though, he's had the last laugh and he's bounced back, just like Alan Partridge, with Darkest Hour, a tale of how Winston Churchill tackled the thorny issue of what to do with Dunkirk. Uh, it'll probably bag Gary Oldman, the Best Actor Oscar, and we sent Nick Dissemlian for It Is He along to talk to uh, Joe Wright when he came into town just before Christmas. So do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined by Joe Wright on the Empire Podcast. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. End of a long day. Yes, <laughs> there has been um, a lot of a lot of talking today. You haven't made any speeches, though. No, no. Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> People waving uh, handkerchiefs around. No, none of that. Yeah. You get to the end of a day of press and you go, "What have I talked about? <laughs> what am I talking about?" We're talking about talking. I mean, the movie is, is a very talky one by its nature. It's yeah. lots of talking uh, men in rooms, talking about politics and military strategy. Was that a daunting thing? Was that was Very that... much so. And that was the big challenge of the job, really, was to try and find a way of making a movie that it was inherently, you know, people talking in rooms, uh, cinematic and dramatic and exciting for, for film audiences. Did you go back and look at other films that are... A little bit, that kind yeah. Of structure? Anything yeah. in particular? Uh, I looked at 12 Angry Men, which is um, 12 men in one, <laughs> in one room. Um, uh, and I looked at a lot of um, uh, Hitchcock's movies, you know. Uh, I looked at um, those kind of early Hollywood movies the way he was so specific about how he shot stuff. Um, so, yeah, I looked at those. Uh, I looked at Downfall as well, which I admired greatly. So, but I try, but, but then I kind of threw all of that away. You know, you have to just, once you've looked at that stuff, you then have to kind of forget about it and just find your own way through it. Well, there's some fantastic camera work. I think the film starts with this amazing shot going down into the, the house with everyone talking and... 
moving around and it's very kind of kinetic yeah it's um uh i always like thinking up the first shot of a film you know and how it might express the film in its entirety uh and it was exciting to start with a scene of that kind of scale and energy and there's a, there's a fantastic build up to introducing churchill obviously gary it, you can't imagine anyone else doing it in this film now but when you signed on was gary part of it at that point or no he wasn't uh i was uh, uh very intrigued by the script i liked the script very much it made me laugh and it made me cry and it and um and it made me think uh and i i, I thought it was very entertaining uh but i wondered whether i'd pay money to go and see a film about winston churchill you know and then i thought of gary and i thought i'd definitely pay money to go and see gary play winston churchill uh, he's an actor who has been a bit of a hero of mine since i was very young and uh, and i think he's the you know he's the greatest actor on the planet as far as i'm concerned so uh, the opportunity to work with him was something that i was you know desperate to to have and this was your first time meeting him for this I project. met him actually once before, about 25 years ago. Um, he made a film called Nil by Mouth, as you know, that he directed. Uh, and a mate of mine, Kathy Burke, was in the film. She was like a mentor to me when I was young. Uh, so she took me to a screening of the film. And, and I remember it was just me and Kathy in, in the cinema. Uh, and then Gary and someone else sat way back behind us. And I remember being completely blown away by the film. It's an incredible piece of work. Uh, and then afterwards, the light came up and, and uh, Kathy introduced me to Gary and said, uh, this is Joe, uh, he's going to be a film director and he's going to direct you in a movie one day. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, right. Uh, hello, Mr. Oldman, thanks very much. Lovely to meet you. Uh, that's my Kevin Perry impersonation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and lo and behold, uh, so it came to pass. Kathy the, Kathy the, the witch. The prophet. Yeah. yeah. Did you remind Gary of that? Yeah, I did. I reminded him of it the first time we ever met, actually. <laughs> it, was my, it was my ace card, you know. <laughs> and is it true? I read that that meeting you guys were vaping together is that true why that got picked up i don't know <laughs> i just imagine you two in a, in a cloud of smoke which is quite apt for this project I for guess. this project yeah maybe and I, I imagine the two of you clicked very quickly and yeah it was you know i um i just i just love gary you know and he's a very conscientious human being and he's very uh gentle and thoughtful and and uh He's not kind of a bullshitter, nor does he like to be bullshitted, um, bullshat. Um, and uh, and we got on, yeah, we got on really well. You know, we're both from London, and we both share some love of British theatre and film and mm. David Bowie, and you know, of course, yeah, I think they were friends. Um, they were very we, we good talk, friends. He talks yeah. about it on this podcast. Actually. Yeah, they used to. They, did he tell you that they used to speak on the phone every Sunday? I think he mentioned that, yeah. yeah. I said to him, what did you talk about? He said, well, England, mostly. <laughs> I just like the idea of Gary Oldman and, and, and David Bowie talking about Victoria Sponge Cake and the likes. I would love to listen to those, those yeah, yeah. Um, those conversations. Do you have a favourite Gary performance? That's a really tough one. Mm, that's a really tough one. <laughs> I, love, I, loved, I loved The Firm. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love Alan Clark as a director. 
and I thought Gary was incredible and that that completely blew my mind there's a scene uh, when he goes back to his parents house flat and he goes into his childhood bedroom and gets out a cosh and starts beating a pillow and I remember just looking at that going that's amazing (laughs) that's amazing acting that is and uh, yeah Uh, it must have been astonishing watching this him doing these delivering these speeches um there did you were you able to kind of enjoy that at the time or, or were you just too too busy being a director and stressing out about various things i just i enjoy directing you know um i love it it's um it's it's my favorite thing in the world to be on set making a movie you know i couldn't wish for anything better so so to be there doing that something i love um and uh, be realising those moments with Gary playing his role so beautifully um, was wrapped up in a great big bow of celluloid, except we shot it digitally. Right. (laughs) And um, you have these lovely shots throughout the film of at least a few of them of Churchill kind of surrounded by darkness which I really liked kind of the, the, a lot of the screen was black at certain points I don't know if I just whether sort of, that was in your mind but there was a scene where he's in the lift and it's yeah. all dark around him I was yeah. wondering if that was a deliberate yeah 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 very much so I mean I wanted to you know one of the one of the issues with making the film was that it's set in May 1940 um, and yet we were shooting it in um, December and January so we couldn't um, go outside and do exteriors um, and I needed to, I wanted to get some wide shots. I wanted to get some sense of scale. Um, and yet we were shooting these very small underground rooms. And so the idea of coming outside of the room and seeing the room as a box um, appealed also poetically to me in terms of, 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 of Winston's isolation and claustrophobia at the time. And um, and so so it was all of those kind of elements wrapped in, wrapped up together. Are you now a master at shooting cigar smoke? Is there anything? Uh, I'm not is there a master a, at anything. I don't, anything, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there was a lot of cigar smoke on this on this project. And what was really funny is like a lot of the locations we shot in said, you know, no smoking on set, and uh, and then we said, well, listen, it's you know, it's 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 Winston Churchill. You can't you you can't have Winston Churchill without smoking a cigar. And they all went, uh, all right then. <laughs> and so Winston Churchill is allowed to smoke cigars in some of the most precious places. I think you can make an exception for him. I and reckon so. You introduce him having a fry up, which is perfect. Yeah. Um, how much did you know about Churchill going in? Were you, are you a bit of a history buff? I'm assuming you are to an extent. No, I'm not really. I mean, I, I, I love history. Um, uh, I find it endlessly fascinating how other people have lived throughout you know history um but it wasn't you know churchill wasn't necessarily a kind of hero of mine um uh to begin with i'd never imagined myself making a churchill movie um but when i read the script i discovered a character that was this funny man who who had this kind of odd difficult personality and then was thrown into this position of vast responsibility and and tried really hard to do the right thing 
and at a certain point had a huge crisis of confidence of self-doubt and then overcame that doubt or, or, or in fact maybe managed to use that doubt and turn it to something positive um and and it was really just about that he, his name could have been something else you know it's kind of a psychological study yeah. of this guy under yeah. an incredible pressure exactly but you obviously tackled dunkirk in atonement from yeah. a, from a very different kind of perspective um yeah, it's funny isn't it yeah it's weird <laughs> you've kind of come back to it what are your yeah. memories of doing that because that's obviously a very celebrated sequence from a film the, the very i think five minutes long yeah something like that um I don't know. I, I my memory of that day is a bit of a blur because it was so adrenalized. I must have walked that beach a hundred times that day. It was one of those days that when I look back through the course of my short time, uh I will remember that day and think that was that was a beautiful day, you know. What I remember of that day is the is the men on the beach, the the residents of Redcar, where we shot that scene, who were you know just normal blokes from from you know worked in the steelworks or whatever you know and um, uh, and their commitment and passion and uh, and generosity making that shot work that shot only is is works because of those 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 men um who were really uh beautiful you know i remember saying to them listen we're making a scene about dunkirk and i reckon uh uh we can honor our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers with this uh but i want you to to really perform them as they were i want you to imagine that you're uh, supporters of uh, of a football team on an away game and you've just lost right and you're all going to behave differently and uh, some of you are going to get drunk and uh, and have a fight and others are going to uh, start praying or singing hymns and others are going to get kind of practical and start thinking about how they can build a boat to get home and so on um, and 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 there was a lot of humanity on that beach that day and um and i find uh that's what i found most moving about it was that something you as soon as you read the script you were like no not at all it was originally that scene was originally written as a montage right um very detailed montage and i worked out that it would probably require about 40 setups 40 different shots to achieve that montage um, and I usually get about like between 11 and 14 setups a day. And to shoot that montage, I only had one day. I could afford one day um, on the beach with a thousand extras. And that's all I had, which sounds like a lot. But actually, then one added the complication that the tide was going to come in and go out. So there'd be no continuity. In fact, the tide was going to wash away our set. Um, uh, so really it was a matter of necessity uh, to to create that and I only figured that out a few weeks before shooting it um, that I was I was going to need to do it as a single steady cam shot and it was a big kind of you know it was a it was a it was a final push it was right towards the end of the shoot 
and um and it was a big challenge to myself and the crew you know yeah oh it's an amazing shot i wanted to ask you about black mirror because that's kind of an inter- really interesting credit on your on your page how, how did you get involved in that i was you know i'd been stung by the reception to pan and i wasn't sure how i'd get back on the horse and then my casting director gina J was casting black mirror and she said you should do one of these they're really good and i read it and um and i loved the uh script i loved the idea of the script there wasn't even a script at that stage i loved the idea because it's all about you know outside validation which was something i was battling with after pan it's about star ratings as well yeah, which is yeah, i guess is even closer you know um uh and so um and so i signed up i mean your, your work has always been received extremely well was yeah. pan was that whole experience a bit of a shock is i mean i'm assuming it was yeah um, a, yeah it was difficult yeah do you kind of look back on that with regret or are you happy no, you did it still? i don't regret yeah. anything you know um you can't regret anything really um, it was a amazing experience, and and I learned a huge amount from it. I mean, I probably learned more from making that film than I have from any other. Um, I learned what I love, which is drama, and I uh, learned what I'm hopefully touch wood good at, which is drama. Um, mm. uh, I'm not really. I don't. You know. I guess I'm not much of a children's entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because I, I read that you wanted to be a magician. Early yeah, on. but even when I was a magician, I wanted to do adult magi- <laughs> Serious you know, magic. Serious magic. Yeah, fine art, magic. You know, yeah. I mean, I used to busk in Covent Garden. Doing, really? I called myself the Great Kazam, <laughs> and I had a tailcoat, and I used to busk in Covent Garden. I was quite good. I used to make like thirty quid a day uh, busking. And then Ken Livingstone took over the GLC, the Greater London Council, and decided that no one under 16 was allowed to busk. And I was only like 12 at the time. And so he took away my audience. I was (laughs) devastated. I tried after that to get work, you know, being a children's party entertainer, doing magic at at children's parties. And I just resented (laughs) their lack of sophistication. (laughs) 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 I I couldn't bear it. So, uh, you know, they didn't take my magic seriously enough. Yeah. Uh, So in the end, I gave up magic and picked up a Super 8 camera. I love the idea of you as a very moody magician, the yeah. people not appreciating the yeah. seriousness of it all. But um, you yeah. have that to fall back on. Yeah. I had the Paul Daniels magic set when I was young, oh, so yeah. I used yeah, to love yeah, doing yeah, tricks. Yeah, yeah. I think I can only remember how to do one, which involved um, an ice cube and a string. Is it, do you remember how to do... Oh, yeah. yeah. What was your kind of signature trick? If you had one? I, um, uh, I really wanted doves you see because uh, every I, I, I actually called myself I took myself so seriously I called myself an illusionist rather than a magician right and um, and I wanted doves um, and my mum wouldn't let me have doves in the house obviously um, so uh, I got some white satin material and I cut out a bird shape and sewed them together and stuffed it with terrilene and then put a little fake you know, like a felt beak on them and, and sewed little eyes on them. And then I put a piece of Velcro on my, on my, on my shoulder 
and a bit of Velcro on the on the dove, and then I had a piece of string going down my arm, so I could pull with the string, and the dove, this kind of dove, would nod its head and give away the answers to my to my illusions, and um, yeah, it went down a storm. Yeah, it's incredible. I think you should keep this up. I think this uh, there's a future in this. Well, um, yeah, maybe I'll. You know, we'll see. Bring the bring the faux dove back. And um, what have you got kind of lined up? Have you are you taking a break now, or have you going straight into something? Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. To be honest with you, there's a there's a beautiful script by Andrew Bovell, um, an adaptation of um, a book called Stoner. So I might do that um, yeah. uh, later next year. But you know, I get through the next. You know, it's getting getting through the day is tricky at the moment. <laughs> Just so, so much talking. Yeah, just so much talking. Talk, talk, you know? talk. Yeah. yeah. And um, you mentioned when you read the Darkest Hour script, you had a very emotional reaction to it. Yeah. Is that what you look for? Do you, do you only kind of take something on if you have that kind of reaction? I have, I have to have a personal connection with the material. Um, and I have to feel like I know a secret about it. It was a really good, you know, um, it was a really a, a wise piece of advice was given me when I was trying to decide between doing bird song and atonement. Um, my agent uh, said to me, well, I can't say which you should do, but if there's one that you know a secret about, then that's the one you should do. And immediately I knew which one, because uh, I felt like I knew a secret about atonement. Um, I knew that I would, you know, succeed or fail. I, I um I would do it differently from anyone else. And so uh, it's it's about kind of feeling like you know a secret about the material. Can you reveal what the Darkest Hour one was or do you keep that stuff close to your chest? Let's keep it close. Forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Spoken like a true illusionist. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. Got to be in the magic circle for that one. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, I'm fascinated by this magic stuff, but do you have a favourite magician? I really loved Ali Bongo. Uh, he was great. Yeah. Okay. How did you get into it in the first place? I don't know. I knew a, I knew a bloke who showed me a, a coin trick, I think. Sleight of hand. I was really into sleight of hand. Um, I didn't like kind of card tricks and that mm. sort of stuff. It was all about, you know, illusionist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm desperate to see some now. But, um, <laughs> You'll never see it. <laughs> all right. Joe Wright, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks. Okay, so that was Joe Wright, and uh, let's now move on seamlessly to this week's movie news, uh, of which there is quite a bit, um, a lot of it awards-related. Now, normally on this podcast, we would give the Golden Globes short shrift, but this year's ceremony seemed to be pretty relevant. Oprah 2020! And pretty significant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so first of all, I mean, everybody wore black, uh, which was a massive change for the men in particular. Who died? Uh, um, uh, justice and equality, Chris. Oh, uh, what? Okay. <laughs> um, no, uh, it was it was to mark a collective response, basically, to the, the recent scandals that have um, rocked Hollywood, the, um, the denouncing of sexual predators like Harvey Weinstein, and, uh, and, the, and the time's up response that the ladies of Hollywood have... Um, have launched in order to help all women, not just those who, who are making films, um, to to kind of stand up to and call out their accusers and uh, and hopefully take them to court and stop them. Sorry, their abusers, not their accusers. Um, hopefully, call them out, take them to court, and stop them abusing anyone else. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they they specifically say this is not just about Hollywood. This is about you know agricultural workers. This is about office workers. This is about all women. Everybody. They put together a massive legal fund to help them and. Um, 
I believe that's now open for donations from normal people as well. And uh, and that's basically what the what the dressed in black thing was about. Um, having said that, not a single one of the male winners uh, specifically touched on the subject, which was a bit of a shame. But many of them talked about it on the on the red carpet and things like that. So there was there was a little bit of a show of support there as well. And some people wore pins and that kind of thing if they weren't, um, you know, if they weren't changing their normal tux. Yeah which they, there was no reason to do because they're all black anyway, for God's sake. Um, so there's a long way to go, but it's a nice, it's a nice start. Um, and Oprah gave a barnstorming speech, which I recommend uh, wa- watching, listening to, reading a transcript of immediately. It is, it is phenomenal stuff. It's a and it's a, reminder of, it's a reminder of, you know, the power of good public speaking and not just nonsense spouted from a tangerine. It's great. It was an amazing speech from Oprah. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't. I tend not to give the Golden Globes any relevance, but this year they it almost demanded well, it, to be taken it seriously. It wasn't about I the think. awards, was it? It was more about the the movement and the reception mm. to that. So, I mean, the, they gave out some awards. Felt a little bit like a footnote to this. Yeah, but I uh, but I also think that this was the year that they 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 were taken seriously. I've yeah. always cogged a, a bit of a. Bit of snook. a snoop at it, yes. Yeah. Snook or snoop? Snook. 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 Yeah. snook. snook. I've always, Supreme leader snook. I've always cocked a supreme leader snook at it. Um, but this year, definitely, I mean, it was it was absolutely everywhere. And it wasn't just because of Oprah. It was, as you say, because of the Time's Up thing. Yeah. Um, but Oprah's speech was just absolutely astonishing. And even more so because she didn't seem to have any written written down. Rimmer style, she hadn't written anything on her, <laughs> she's, on her I mean, hands. She's, she's done some public speaking it's in her time. Has she? Yeah, she's... I only know her from movies. A little bit much that as soon as someone is able to put together a speech, they're suddenly in the running for the presidency. <laughs> it's a bit like, really? You know, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was a fantastic speech, but I'm not sure, I think it might be a little bit uh, premature to start, you know. Yeah, wild, wildly so, frankly. Uh, um, but um, but she's certainly more qualified than the current incumbent, and uh, <laughs> as are and, all three and, of us, and probably yeah. has more um, more it's, soft power than him right now. But this packet of I don't think she will. Thai chili and lime crisps is more qualified than the current incumbent, but true and less orange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but should we talk about the awards themselves as well? Because um, there were sure. they were an interesting batch, mm. and I think uh, coupled with the BAFTA nominations this week. I don't know whether the Oscar picture has become a little bit murkier. Uh, I, 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 I thought I knew where everything was going to go, and now I'm not so sure. I don't think either of them is a good indicator of the Oscars this year, possibly because my current favourite candidate wasn't particularly well served by either, which is, I, I'm, I'm still in the sort of get out for the win camp, actually, mm-hmm. um, for the Oscars. Um, I'm not sure why I think that, but I just do. And um, uh, the BAFTAs obviously largely ignored it. Um, the Golden Clo- Globes ditto... Um, and it was it was an odd spread of awards. I think we all expected Gary Oldman and Frances McDormand to dominate their categories. Uh, I think they remain the ones to beat come the Oscars. Uh, but I'm not sure that three billboards is is quite as much of a, a leading candidate as as the Golden Globes suggested. So it it, it won quite a few at the Golden Globes. Yeah. It? Uh, how many nominations at the at BAFTAs? Shape of Water has twelve. Nine, maybe I think at the BAFTAs. So nine for well, that's something yeah, like that. Let's just say nine uh, and, and go with that. Uh, I don't know. It, it's interesting. I mean, there's there's been a lot of conversation about how Get Out might actually have a real shot at winning Best Picture or certainly winning something significant at the mm. at the Oscars. Uh, and then BAFTA comes along and ignores it completely. Also ignores the Post, 
Spielberg's opposed. Yeah, I mean, both very American stories, though, so maybe they just didn't chime with BAFTA version. And also The Post, I think, screened very late and hasn't seemed to screen, screen very much, so I wonder if all the voters have seen it in both cases. Um, I, Possibly, I feel yeah. like that might be uh, that might go some way to explaining uh, the post sort of under underperformance relatively. And the other thing is that I think people take Spielberg for granted, and, and he tends to underperform at the Oscars unless he gives them literally no choice by making Schindler's List. Like it <laughs> is genuinely the the fact that you know Spielberg has won as few Oscars as he has is is baffling mm. to me. Delighted in terms of the Baftas at least uh, for Paddington Two. It was nominated for Best British Film. Yes. Uh, and Paul King and Simon Farnaby nominated for Best Screenplay. Brilliant. Fantastic. And Hugh Grant for Paddington 2, nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and in my opinion should win, and uh, is absolutely amazing. Not eligible for this year's Oscars, by the way, in case you're, in case you're wondering. It didn't um, come out in the US in time, did it? Yes, it's not out yet. It'll be out this weekend, I think, in the US, or, or next weekend. But uh, coming out very, very soon. But very, very happy for that. And, uh, and very, very happy as well. Honestly, uh, I love Guillermo del Toro to bits, and I, I'm delighted that he won Best Director at the Golden Globes for... The Shape of Water. Mm. Uh, I'd be very intrigued to see uh, if that if he now follows suit uh, with the Oscars. Shame that Greta Gerwig didn't get a nod in either the yep. Globes or the Baftas for Best Director. Actually, I haven't I seen Lady Bird yet, but it's I hear very very fabulous. Good things. Yeah. Mm. Who 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 would drop out for Greta, Greta Gerwig or for Jordan Peele? Uh, Ridley from, Scott maybe. Was Ridley Scott nominated at the Golden Globes? Yeah, I believe so. Mm. Okay, uh, but I will say just one last thing on the on the subject of the Baftas and Hugh Grant and Paddington Two. His tweet. <laughs> Reaction because everyone, pretty much everyone, issues statements going. I'm incredibly humbled by this this wonderful honor. Oh my God! Thank you so much. And Hugh Grant tweeted, and he appeared to be possessed by the spirit of Phoenix Buchanan. His tweet <laughs> is as follows: BAFTA, my darlings, cravat clutch, gasp, most humble thanks, a solitary tear. <laughs> oh, bravo! Give this man a BAFTA. How That's can you not win? <laughs> That's, he's got to win. I've never seen win. as much delight uh, about a single nomination as I saw for his. I did uh, love him in that film. He's, he's, he's so good. Yeah. Uh, he's up against Sam Rockwell, Rudy Harrelson, uh, Christopher Plummer, uh, and Willem Dafoe in that category. Ah, Best Actor at the BAFTAs is a tough category. Uh, as is this one. Best Actor in a Leading Role, mm. Daniel Day-Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, which I believe is how you pronounce his name. And again, please <laughs> write in if I've got that wrong. Not Chalamet. I, no, I've heard pronounced Chalamet. Okay. But, you know, who knows? Sure. Okay. It doesn't sound right to me. No. I always pronounce it Chalamet, but then uh, someone... Maybe I dreamt it. Mm-hmm. Should I do it again? Nah, don't worry Timothy about it. Chalamet. I'm going to go with Chalamet because sure. it feels better, doesn't he it? He's got it an just, accent on the E. He does. He does. The accent makes it... It can't be yeah. Chalamet. Chalamet. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out yeah. Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour yeah. and, of course, Jamie Bell for Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. That, I mean, no... That category, it's weird because Daniel Day-Lewis is in it and he isn't the front runner. That is bizarre. Have mm. we ever had that before? Crazy. It is interesting. Mm. The front runner, of course, being Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Followed by Jamie Bell, of course. Of course. <laughs> Not Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet. Anyway. Best film, Shape of Water, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Three Ill Billboards, Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Call Me By Your Name. Uh, best Actress in the Leading Role, Annette Benning for Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water, Frances McDormand for Three Billboards, Margot Robbie for I, Tonya, and Saoirse Ronan for Lady Bird. Now, Saoirse Ronan won at the Golden Globes, Globes as yep. well, which is intriguing because I've seen a lot of Margot Robbie frontrunner stuff. Uh, some prognosticators saying that she's probably going to take it, but I think that's actually quite wide open. 
I, I think McDormand's the one to beat. Actually, she's still. astonishing in yeah. three billboards, by mm. the way. Uh, Best British film, Death of Stalin, Darkest Hour, three billboards. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess British producers, Lady Macbeth, God's Own Country and Paddington 2. It's a best, phenomenal list, though. It is a good list. Uh, best actress in a supporting role, Leslie Manville, Alison Janney, Laurie Metcalf, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. Also an embarrassment of Richards. Indeed. Indeed it is. Manville might might take that one. I, I would thought Alison really Janney was the favourite for that. Oh, Alison Janney is... I think uh, she's phenomenal in Itonia and indeed in everything she has ever done in her entire life. Well, her work for uh, Anne Sorkin is particularly And And, I mean, her performance as a uh, shopper in Miracle on 34th Street <laughs> is, is absolutely brilliant. I'm not even kidding. Um, but uh, I, I would actually genuinely like to see it go to Leslie Manville because I think she's, she's great in Phantom Threat. Do you know who I think has dropped out of the Oscar race? And I think it's a real shame. And it's not just a film. Uh, it's not just the actress, but the film. Um, Holly Hunter and The Big Sick seems to have yeah. dropped out mm. almost entirely. And when maybe I saw that film... Maybe a screenplay nod, yeah. Maybe, yeah, probably will get a screenplay nod. But I would have thought, when I first saw that film, I thought, oh, okay, here's someone who's going to get... She's she's great. And Ray Romano is great in that film as mm. well. In fact, they're all great. We haven't watched it again. Kamel Nanjiani's fantastic. I'm, I'm a little surprised his name hasn't been in the conversation a little bit more because, yes, he's playing himself, but he does some pretty heavy lifting in that film. Uh, but Holly Hunter's great. But this year does seem to be the year best supporting actress of the the sharp tongued mother, and so maybe <laughs> she was slightly beaten out by the likes of Alison Janney and Laurie Metcalf, and mm. who knows, who knows. Anyway, it's a it's a it's an interesting year, and I'll be very very intrigued to see how it all pans out. And Golden, the Oscar nominations are out in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks time. Okay, so let's talk about all that when it happens, right? What else have we got to talk about? Um, oh, we should mention that there's another award ceremony coming up. The, the Empire Awards? The Empire Awards, yes, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's the one that they all want to go to. And it's the one that they all want to win. <laughs> and it's the only one I think can actually be legitimately used as a murder weapon. <laughs> it is very weighty, surprisingly really? so. I, don't... I feel like you could do some damage with an Oscar. Well, depends what you do with it. But Ew. you can definitely use this as a bludgeoning tool. Jimbo, how can people vote? Where can they vote? And there's a, there's a whole ton of categories this year, but and some people have been getting in touch with me. And you don't worry. You don't have to vote in every single category. If you don't have an opinion on best costume design or best short film... You don't have to fill those bits in, but where can they where can they do this? They can vote at www or just www. No, that won't work. <laughs> www.empireonline.com/slash/awards2018. There we go. And um, when's the deadline? Um, a good question. I don't know the answer. Hold on. If you on. know the answer to the question, <laughs> when the deadline for the can 40... you please write in? Yeah, I please... will check for you. Hold on. Please do write in. Uh, so what else is happening? A Black Widow movie, maybe. A Black happening. Widow movie. Hooray! Friday, the 19th of January. Well, that was quick. Marvel move fast, don't they? <laughs> That's the deadline. Oh, right, okay. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was like coming out next week. <laughs> that makes a bit more sense. Yeah, Kevin Feige realised there was a month this year where there wasn't a Marvel movie and he, he moved swiftly to fill the gap. We believe he could do it, don't we? He probably could. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is a Black Widow movie that, 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 it, that for years they've said, oh, it won't happen. And you know what? I think this is all down to my tweet a few years ago. I tweeted, <laughs> I tweeted would you watch a Black Widow movie? And several hundred people wow. said yes. Well, that is money in the bank. That's like a thousand pounds in the bank um, right there. Marvel must have looked at it and gone, four. S- start the ball rolling. Yes. S- in several years from now. I want an executive producer credit, you know, and a, and a check. Not, uh, right. That's what I want. But anyway, yes, tell me more about it. 
Um, well, the big news is that a writer has been hired in the shape of Jack Schaefer, and she uh, wrote the sci-fi indie movie Timer in 2009, if you remember that, um, has written uh, an alien invasion comedy called The Shower recently, which is apparently in development. Um, but Anne Hathaway is linked to that one, and she liked her so much that she had her write a Dirty Rotten Scoundrels remake, which is called Nasty Women, so, which I like the sound of. That's coming out this year. Um, she also apparently worked on the script for Olaf's Frozen Adventure, but, you know, we, let's, let's not go <laughs> for that. Excuse um, me, there will be no dissing of Olaf's Frozen Adventure, which I watched over Christmas and thought was quite delightful. So, yeah, so she's uh, she's obviously quite a hot property right now. She's got all that stuff yeah. in development. Um, mm-hmm. The work on Olaf in particular, I mean, she's already worked with Disney. She's got a little bit of form for the, for the mother studio, if you will. But it's at least taking shape. We don't know when we're going to see it. Or um, how it fits into or stuff. Or how it fits in. But presumably, Feige has a plan. See, the word that I've seen... Indeed. The word that I've seen in relation to this today and the stories is standalone, which intrigues me. Hmm. And the timing of it intrigues me as well because we imagine that Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff, played by Scarlett Johansson, of course, will be crucial to the events of Avengers 3 and 4. Right. Um, Whether she makes it out... Of the events of Avengers three and four, we don't know about any of them. So, but assuming she does, sure, then they're okay. Assuming she doesn't, what does this mean? Does this mean it's a standalone prequel? And when are they going to drop it in? Could you conceivably? Could you, Helen, conceivably make a Black Widow? Say it was like a John Wick thing, like a really down and dirty, no real trappings of superheroism, no real CG stuff. Yep, just a down and dirty spy movie. Boom. Featuring Scarlett Johansson kicking the shit out of a whole load of blokes. Yeah. I mean, it worked in Lucy. Uh, could you do that and have it in cinemas this year? What? Could you do that and have it in cinemas for next year? Certainly, Certainly for yeah. next year. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? There's been a lot of uh, set photos from Avengers this week, which I recommend people avoid in case of spoilers. Yeah. I have a theory about things. And I know I you think do. That, uh, I think yeah. they said visit the pictures are... They're backing it up, aren't they, Chris? I think they yeah. are. I think they are. We'll say no more about that. Mm. Because we should talk about... Well, speaking of um, Captain America with a beard, obviously brings me to Snowpiercer. <laughs> Look, we're always speaking about Captain America with a beard, aren't we? I feel like. And then I always say, <laughs> but enough about that. Sharon Carter. Hey! On we go. Snowpiercer was Bong Joon-ho's phenomenal 2013 uh, train sci-fi thriller um, which didn't even get released in the UK. No, uh, so no one has seen it. Well, I have, because I was clever enough to go to the Edinburgh Film Festival at the right time, James. Well done, you. Yes, thank you. Um, but it hasn't been released in the UK because um, because the universe hates us, and that's why Brexit happened. And um, But it is, there is hope, because a TV series uh, based on it has been picked up by the US cable channel TNT. If that does well, then we can hope that maybe somebody will show us the damn movie already. Um, I'm right in saying that Chris Evans won't be in it, but the beard will be making an appearance. I really hope the beard will be there. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, the the, the film's cast was extremely uh, expensive and, and high-profile. You had Chris Evans, Octavia Spencer, John Hurt, the late, great John Hurt, and, of course, Tilda Swinton. Um, that's obviously a little bit difficult to, to line those people up. Um, so they are going for Debbie Diggs, my beloved Debbie Diggs, of Hamilton. Uh, Jennifer Connelly is is lined up for it. Presumably one might guess in a, something like the Tilda Swinton role unless yeah. they t- twist everything. But the concept is the same. So the world has become a frozen wasteland after somebody tried to fix global warming and went a little bit too far in the other direction. And the last humans on the planet 
are circling the globe in this massive, perpetually moving train, which is the only thing keeping them alive. That movement is the only thing that kind of... A train journey that never ends. A train journey that never ends. A lot like Southern Rail. Uh, Very much like Southern Rail, except that the whole of humanity is is held captive. So a lot like Southern Rail. (laughs) Yes. With class divides and everything. Uh, so writer is Josh Friedman um, and Scott Derrickson is apparently handling the pilot, which is exciting. He is. He's, yeah. he's talked, he's talk, he, it's shot, the pilot's been shot. Yeah. He's talked about it uh, many, many times on the old Twitter machine. I'm intrigued. And I'm also intrigued, the last thing we'll talk about this week in terms of news, that Millie Bobby Brown, who of course plays Eleven in Stranger Things, we all know that, we've all seen it, she is going to star in a new movie, and they've already said the word franchise. Jesus Christ, Don't guys. Don't say franchise. Walk before you can run. Uh, she's going to star as Sherlock Holmes' teenage sister, Enola Holmes, based on the Enola Holmes mysteries by author Nancy Springer. Uh, and it's going to be a big old blockbuster coming out maybe 2019, 2020, something like that. But here's the kicker as well. Not only is Millie Bobby Brown going to star, she is going to produce the film as well. Do you ever feel like an underachiever? A little bit. Remind me, she's 14? It says 13 here. So, Oy. Yeah, but just imagine taking a meeting with a 13-year-old and having to take their notes. When I was 13, That's ageist, Chris. my only is accomplishment it? was having been fired from a paper round. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'm pretty sure I had a swimming certificate, so yeah. like I guess I'd have that as an accomplishment. Yeah. Well, my, when I was 13, my notes to people would have been, it needs more lightsabers and more superheroes. So <laughs> I think I've really changed the notes when you were when? <laughs> okay. <laughs> 33. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. Well, that's probably, a, you know, I mean, fair play to her. Fair you know? play, indeed. And listen, if you can do it, if you can wield the power... It doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah. And like I say, she's clearly very, very smart. She supports Liverpool, so she's clearly oh, got her head screwed on. Good Lord. Moving so, good. hastily on, uh, did you hear that Stephen Knight is making a science fiction show for Apple? Which is quite exciting. Oh. I didn't hear that. So Apple is stepping up their game to compete with the likes of Amazon and Netflix. Uh, it doesn't have a title, but apparently it's a science fiction series. And this kind of joins their new version of uh, Spielberg's Amazing Stories. And Rondi Moore of Battlestar Galactica fame is doing a sci-fi show for them as well. Wow. Uh, now, Night Show, we literally know nothing about it, except for the fact that Francis Lawrence is aboard to direct at least one episode. Hmm. How exciting. Um, it's just interesting because everyone is throwing their hat into this TV game in a big way. And... I'm already, frankly, stressed to death with the amount of TV <laughs> on my list of shit to watch that I don't have time to oh, watch. Okay. Please, make stuff slower. Just, you're killing me here. Well, I don't know, but I'm quite enjoying the weekly shows at the moment because, you know, The Good Place was back this week. Oh, and nice. Could I say and the new Good Place episode was so well written. That Affleck gag was hilarious. Oh, yeah. And uh, Star Trek Discovery this week. Yeah. Another... I mean, oh, I mean, oh my God. <laughs> I, re- I really want to spoil it and I'm not going to, but, um, but you know, Mary Universe. Anyway. I, I'm also watching Hard Sun, which I'm really enjoying. Interesting. Hard Sun, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, won't, I can't talk about the plot because it just ruins it for everyone, but uh, Jim Sturgis and Agnes Dean, well worth watching. And I also watched Britannia. Ha- have you? I haven't seen that yet and I was on set. Well, I have reviewed it in the next issue and I shan't spoil that for you. Gosh, that's not ominous at all. I watched two episodes last night of Law and Order SVU, oh, and what? Harry Hamlin was in it. All right, and he only had a cameo role in one episode. But the minute I saw him, I turned to my drinking game buddy wife and said, uh, "He's a bad one. There's something about that guy. You don't cast Harry Hamlin. You don't cast a big name, big heavy hitter like Hamlin in, in this, and have him just you know push some pencils around." Lo and behold, second episode turned out to be a wrong one. 
Can I also say, by the way, because I'm not sure I talked about it last week, Derry Girls on Channel 4. Oh if you're my not God, watching so good. Derry Girls, what is it? get so after good. it. I've never it heard is, of it. It's it a is, comedy, James. You wouldn't like it. And it's yeah. got a strange accent. It's I a half-hour comedy Ooh. set in Derry in the 90s. It's set in London Derry, Helen. You're yes, absolutely right. right. It is, exactly, you're, in you're Derry. Right. And, uh, it is set, indeed, oh. in London Derry. Or Helen, as we say... Derry. Anyway. Helen is absolutely right. Uh, once Stop again. Stop this sectarian violence immediately. <laughs> and it is, uh, it's about Northern Irish teenagers. and That's right. It is about Northern Irish teenagers in London Derry. In well, Derry. Yeah, you're, That's right. You're right. <laughs> Look, they're from my ha- side of the tracks. All right. Stop. My point being. Um, respect the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> Thanks, James. I've got nothing but respect for the Good Friday Agreement. It's the Great Friday Agreement, if you ask me. Oh, good Lord. So anyway, it's um, it's phenomenal and it's very, very funny and I have never cackled so much watching it's TV. It's so good. It's but so good. I will admit, you may you may need like a glossary or something because it does use, you know, Northern Irish terms and right. expressions. He's going to need subtitles. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Actually, I'm, just switch on the subtitles. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to give this a miss. It's already a comedy, half hour, and I need subtitles. It's just, no, no, no. it's no. honestly, it's phenomenally funny. Well, the thing is, I'd say I'm far too busy, but I actually ended up watching, as I was tweeting, I watched the series finale of ER for no apparent reason last week <laughs> because I'd never watched the last few series. And I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll watch the final episode. A lot happened in the episodes I missed. It was a whole thing. Dr. Green left before the end, though, so well, well, why would left, you Left is a euphemism for what happened to Dr. Green. <laughs> oh, yeah, I just remember. Didn't he get a brain tumour? Yeah, I'm not, not okay and with And then them. Angela Bassett was in it, and apparently Carter married Tandy Newton and had a baby. Missed that. Um, yeah, lot, lots of stuff, things, and what is her face? Um, 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 Rory Gilmore was in it yeah, as a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Didn't know that was happening. Okay, so, right, that's all movie news sorted out then. Uh, our next guest this week... Our final guest this week, rather, is a writer, director, playwright, and he likes to push the envelope just like his brother, John Michael. Uh, he is, of course, Martin McDonough, the brilliant mind behind In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. He's back this week with the caustic and thought-provoking three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, I went to speak to him late last year. Word to the wise, when I turned up for this interview, I realised shortly before going into the room that I had forgotten the microphones. So... Jimbo, you were there, weren't you? I was. I was. That was I quite was, the moment, wasn't it? It was, and I had to sit in the waiting room while we figured out how we were going to do it. Because the idea was you were yeah. going to come in and do it with me, and uh, and then realised, oh shit, I've actually had the microphones on my on the on my desk at work, so I had to improvise. So the sound levels may not be quite up to scratch. But hopefully, going to be very good in him, less so in me. Which case, win win. Uh, so here you are, Martin McDonough talking to some idiot. Enjoy. Uh, delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the writer and director of the brilliant Three Billboards outside Epping, Missouri, Mark Madonna. How are you, sir? Good, thanks for having me. Good. Uh, so far, is that a question you've been asked before? How are you? No, no, that was good. I like that. Okay. Yeah. We should explain that um, <laughs> Martin says, even though you were three hours into your press tour, yeah, you've been already been asked the same question over A lot of repetitions, so if, if I hear it again, there's going to be a... <laughs> That is tough for me because I'm a, I'm a incredibly generic person. <laughs> My questions are usually first place. I, I did want to start off by talking about this, which is the uh, published screenplay okay. of of the uh, of the film, obviously, because I don't see this happen this often these days. I mean, I, I was thinking I was having a conversation with a, with a, another film director the other day. We were talking about Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs and how mm. the, the whole cult of a published screenplay seemed to happen around that time. Yeah, I remember getting them at that time too. Absolutely. Yeah. And it seems to have gone away. So is this something that you are trying to bring back? Um, how, does this, how does this come about? 
I, uh, I, I like it. Maybe it's the background in, in theatre and having, uh, you know, a relationship with Faber from, from the plays. Mm. There, there's a natural uh, a link there. And, and they, uh, they published uh, in Bruges when that came out. Um, so I think for me, maybe it's, it's about that. But I guess you don't see them around too often. But um, yeah, it's probably just just the uh, the theatre connection. It's interesting as well because obviously this movie is now out in the UK until January, so people can now go in and they can buy it and they can be equipped with the text mm. before they go in to see the film. Oh, I hope they don't though. But that's the thing. Do you, you know, is that is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was stu- that was stupid planning on my part. Um, no, they said they wanted them out for the London Film Festival screening, but that was really stupid. But I don't know how many people would would read. What do you think? Would they read the read the screenplay before I think some seeing people the would. There's a, there's a spoiler culture, and people yeah. love to know spoilers. Uh, but which is crazy because I hate that. I hate watching trailers just in case. Yeah. Are um, you? So you're absolutely. You're, you're trailer reverse I, I, or I'll start watching a trailer but if anything starts coming up I'll, 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 uh, I'll switch off um, I, tr- yeah, I try to avoid that stuff but even, especially reviews I, I never read reviews you know I'll, I'll glance at the, the, the star rating but uh-huh. I'll never because you don't want to I don't want to know Okay. I can't imagine why anyone would, especially a film like this, which does have lots of sort of twists and ho- yeah. hopefully thing you know things you can't see coming at all. I wouldn't want to know because that's part of the the storytelling of it. So after this, you're going to go to foils and take them all off shelves, <laughs> or just uh, scribble out the parts with the twists. <laughs> just yeah, rip out the last twenty, thirty pages, <laughs> yeah. something like that, and some of the middle pages, and some of the and indeed some of the opening as well. There you go. So <laughs> just just steal steal the book. I remember. I, was I wonder on... if they'd uh, jail you for. Stealing your own books? No, you'd be fine. You're in author's privilege. There you go. Yeah, it's a legal thing. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, so you want people to go into this film as, as blind as they, as you possibly can. As blind as uh, a bat. Are you involved in in, in terms of uh, crafting the marketing of the movie? Because um, yes, um, <clears throat> it usually works that they 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 being sort of Fox Search, Fox Searchlight and and Film Four. Um, send like a, a, a few of like maybe 10 or 12 possible posters okay um and you give input and if there's something you like you kind of you, you focus on that one and, and and gear uh gear them into making that the best uh, the best version of that as you can mm-hmm. and and the the poster we've got now and the cover of the book is i, I love it it was like um, uh, yeah because it, it doesn't give too much away mm-hmm. and it doesn't you know display um it doesn't beg you to come see it by showing all of the actors in you know <laughs> massive <laughs> massive photos from 20 years ago um but it kind of hopefully pulls you in with its slightly creepiness and it's mm-hmm. it's but there's a classic look to to the poster and the cover of the book too that's kind of you know that could be from from the 50s or something no, and and you could say the the film could be the same you know so far i haven't had a so i'm i think i'm doing okay doing well here i'm, I'm about to venture into e territory Uh-oh. because obviously it's ebbing missouri uh, why ebbing missouri and was that something that um, well, Ebbing is a made-up town, um, but it, but it, but I like the sound of the word, and it, it, it could be a town in 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 any of the states, really. Mm-hmm. And Missouri, at the time of writing, especially, uh, was just three a three syllable state. You know, I, I knew it, <laughs> <laughs> it was, as stupid as that sounds. I liked the sound of it, um, but it also needed to be a one of the old uh, thirteen Confederate states because there's okay, uh, yeah, yeah. there's details of sort of 
police racism in 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 the background of the story and um and it's a sort of a, a southern gothic uh tale to some degree so it had to be uh one of those uh, old southern states but not one that that everything is set in or that everything is filmed in so you wouldn't want to be in louisiana or uh even georgia there's an awful lot of stuff uh, filmed there um so somewhere it's a little off the beaten track that had three syllables rhythm is clearly important to you uh, as, a, as a writer and as a director yeah and you're working with actors on this movie that you've worked with before yeah so clearly the likes of sam rockwell woody harrelson have dialed into your rhythms as a director yeah working with them second time around did you what was new for you uh, as a director with with those guys as actors um it was kind of just just um almost an easier way of working you know even less less to talk about on on the morning of the shoot you know we we did we do know know each other's rhythms you kind of talk about the the script and the characters with them before you start shooting if you can grab like a a week or two of rehearsal but a a rehearsal can just mean talking about the script with one actor um for me um so like on the day there's not an awful lot of um conversations about which way a scene is going to go because you know that already and you hopefully sort of know where the character is coming from from those old conversations um so it's more about letting them get at it giving them a a bunch of goes and just uh trying to pull out if if you think there's a couple of lines should be sadder or angrier or uh or funnier um uh, just 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 aim for repeating those a little bit more but with actors of that caliber, you know, it's 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 there's a lot a lot that goes unsaid. I mean, as a, as a as a writer though, are you thinking of the rhythm of the title is clearly important to you? But mm. I presume you don't start with the title. I presume you start no. with an idea, a plot idea, or do you start with a thematical, a thematical, a thematic idea? Uh, never the thematical. Um, never the thematical because it doesn't exist. <laughs> it does now. Well, why not? Um, we can coin you words. Exactly. Um, it, with this, it was, uh, and with me, usually it's. Um, it's not even plot. It's 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 character, or it's an if, initial little premise. And the initial premise of this was a a mother putting up three uh, provocative uh, billboards to call out um, the local police department for either their ineptitude mm-hmm. uh, of uh, of not solving her her daughter's uh, murder. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that was the starting point, but that's not really a plot. But that's all I had. That's all I had to to, to go on. Does that pop into your head unbidden? Um, or, or? No, that that weirdly that one I did see something on billboards very similar to this uh, to what we see in the film uh, about like seventeen or eighteen years ago on a on a bus going through. It could have been Georgia. I'm not sure where the bus was. It could have been Georgia, but I know that trajectory was sort of Georgia, Florida, um, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Mississippi and and it was like something you saw in a field in in, in the blink of a light an eye literally but it stayed with me in the, the the idea of what kind of pain or rage would prompt someone to put up uh, uh, a couple of billboards like that because it was just two I think it it, it it just stayed with me and once I decided it was a mother who'd done it um uh, it, it was almost like the part of uh, Mildred played by Francis, it just yes. almost started writing itself. Yes. To have someone starting from a place of rage and anger like that, and also the willpower to, to, to put something up there, just 
gave me uh, an insight into the mind of this strong, fierce, determined woman. And um, they're kind of unusual in films. Um, <laughs> so, so, so there was something kind of joyful about following what the hell she would do from scene to scene. And I didn't know what it would be. Uh, so that's kind of how this one got written. It just, I was just following her and seeing what she would do next. And then you kind of set up the, 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 uh, the, the opposite number to her, which is Woody's character, Willoughby, uh, the, the, the chief of police that she's calling out. And then, uh, you know, you, you surround him with, uh, his underlings, I guess. And one of those would be Sam Rockwell, who's, uh, who's uh, a bit more thuggish and a bit more racist than one would like a police officer to be. So, uh, but the thing is, like, and the idea that uh, that started revealing itself was that the war is between uh, Francis's character and Woody's character, but they're both not bad people. So it's like a war between uh, two sides who who are in the right to a, to a large extent. And what happens when a war like that escalates? And that's kind of pretty early on where the story started uh, pointing to so you say that you don't really know where the, the story's going to go you don't really know where the characters are going to go presumably obviously you want to surprise the audience and you by surprising yourself that's yeah. half the job done yeah as you're writing writing the scene you obviously know where the scene's beginning do you know where it's going to end um, how far in advance do you know what's going to happen to characters maybe only like a scene or two ahead of the of the of the scene that's about to to be the shocker you know you're, okay, you're well, yeah. yeah so so that i think came as much of a surprise to me as hopefully it will to absolutely an audience yeah. who hasn't checked all the spoilers or, or read, read the, the book or read the <laughs> so is there a moment when you're doing something like that and a character will surprise you or a development will surprise you and you stop and you take stock and you go okay this is going in a completely different direction from what i anticipated yeah uh how does that affect everything it hasn't affected anything oh is it too far and i have to back up and wipe that out yeah again. yeah yeah but um you do that but you are like i at, at this stage of my writing career or whatever you'd call it i usually only go like two or three scenes down a dead end to know before i know it is a dead end or okay, it's or yeah. it's closing off too many options i think when you're writing certainly like in the first 20 or 30 pages everything should be on the table and everything should be opening out mm-hmm. um but as you get to the middle you should be sort of round in the bend for home i think um yes. so yes. you can't keep bringing new revelations in you should be so all the revolution revelations and the and the surprises should really be coming in the first half hour maybe uh uh or, or longer the structure of this, I don't know what the hell it is, you know, because it's, it's not, it's not, it seems to work, so, but, but I couldn't, I, you couldn't tell me what the structure is. I think the first act is a, is an act, but then yes. there's, then there's, then there's nothing. No, true. It's just like characters. It's not like you even have like a three billboard, three act structure where it's one billboard per act. It's, yeah, no. It's not quite as signposted, literally no. signposted as that. Yeah, but somehow, and I guess I was trying to think about it earlier today, I think because the, the, the character arcs if you i kind of hate that phrase but if if that is real uh, and truthful Mm -hmm. somehow that kids us into thinking that there is a a structure to it and there really isn't but because because those arcs are are different um i think you go with it and so far audiences have because because that's the payoff almost more than the plot being a payoff you mentioned that the favor of also published in bruges uh was Seven Psychopaths something you considered publishing, or, or 
Um, I don't think. I, I think we all kind of lost uh, uh, our. Uh, um, uh, yeah, no. I think for me, it didn't quite work, and no one was knocking down my door to print it. So I oh, think really? we kind okay. of agreed to um, let that one slip, slip by. I would have, but they didn't care about it and that's interesting so is, is that a movie that you, you feel perhaps less than fondly towards I think it, I thought he was actually on stage for a yes Q&A yeah it, like it's, it's, it's it's my it's my least favourite of the three I think I, the, I I really liked what we achieved with Bruges uh, and I wasn't so happy, and it was all my fault. The, the the you know looking at it from a distance, the the why the reason I don't like it are, are, are my problems alone, okay. or my faults in the directing of it. I think it's it's tricky to do something that's that meta and that um, it's it's almost a film about films instead of being yeah. a, a, a film about real characters, um, and. I didn't want that to happen with this one. I didn't want it to be, uh, uh, you know, a movie about movies. Because in Bruges wasn't. It was like, even though it's like a a genre sort of story or had the facade of a genre story, it was just about a couple of blokes in a tragic situation, really. Uh, And so I kind of watched them back to back before making this one and, and tried to pick out what it was that I did like about the first that I didn't like about the second and try to um, give more room for the good stuff in this one um, and that was mostly about just letting characters letting, letting them breathe letting them seeing them think on screen seeing them look at themselves in a mirror even uh, but just giving them time to, to be with them just to to, to to fill in their thoughts, thoughts almost mm. to to just linger on their eyes at the end of a scene and just wonder what they're going through. Oh, interesting. Um, Frances is amazing in this film. Yeah, um, yeah, she's brilliant. If she, if she doesn't get nominated, there's something deeply, deeply wrong with the universe. But yeah. uh, uh, and win, I say. And win. But I, but I think Sam too. I mean, Sam's Sam never been nominated, uh, and it'll be, no. it'll be, he's never been nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> and I think it's a crime. It would be a crime if he doesn't. But it was a crime that he didn't get nominated for Moon. You know, yeah. all confessions, but yeah. Moon especially because that, like that's two performances or more in one movie. Absolutely, <laughs> you're very right. You're very right. He <laughs> should have got nominated for two Oscars. <laughs> Hell, he should be nominated for being Sam Rockwell. Exactly. Just, just, just yeah. Sam Rockwell. Just, you know. <laughs> I don't. I've done there for Iron Man too, personally, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that's just me. Um, but they are phenomenal in this movie. And uh, I remember speaking to uh, Peter Mullen a few years ago, and he was talking about first day as an actor. You want something simple. You mm. want that opening the door scene. You want to feel your way into a character. I imagine though, an actress like Frances, an actor like Sam, uh, and Woody even, that they come day one and they show up right away and. Or do you have to? Or do they ease into it? Can you can you remember? Um, they they do show up, uh, uh, you know, ready to go. But you still don't want you don't want to jump into to to the toughest scenes in the first week, even let alone the first day. Definitely the first day, you want it to be as uh, as easy um, a day as possible. You, 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 because they haven't had time had time to to get into the character really yet. Yeah. As much prep as you might do there's no you know you kind of I think they seem to learn it as they go along during the filming so so no even in the first week you want to keep it simple it's it's those 
probably third and fourth weeks are the heart always the heart of the, so the film. ones you build the woods yeah if it's like a seven week shoot it's like three and f- weeks three and four that is usually the, the big stuff um yeah you've got to give them and, and you as a director too I mean like I leave, leave big gaps between making films and sometimes it feels like you're really starting from scratch when you do a new one it was a little bit less so this way but it's always, always you know you're around a lot of new people and, and, and you, you, you might have lost a bit of confidence or you don't you know it's it's just new stuff but at the same time that's why I kind of I've started almost using a, like a repertory company of actors because yeah. there's about six or seven actors from this who were either in Seven Psychos or, or, or Bruges before um, so and also the same DP and the same first AD mm-hmm. and, and that little uh, triangle uh, with the director is really important and, and those are the same uh, same as on Seven Psychos the last thing I'm going to ask is uh, this is you're not going to go eh, at this one, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> I am, whatever it is. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm telling you not. Uh, so a few years ago, Empire took part in a charity football tournament down at the Den in Millwall. Uh-oh. And I seem to recall seeing you, and I think John was there as well. Yeah. Your brother John. Yeah. Uh, so were you... I was, I was playing. I was, I was. Who were you with? I was. We were, we were the Empire team that finished bottom of our group. We oh yeah. Oh yeah. You were the San Marino of the of the group. <laughs> Pretty I remember. much. Yeah. We're the bye. Without the style. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to. Were you there just to support people, or are you a football fan? No, just we just love, love playing football, and okay. we're we're really loud and really not very good. But <laughs> but we would think about that charity tournament all year, and, right. and it's. I think it's defunct now. I don't think they've played it the last no, couple of years. But we were going up until two years ago. Like, really? Yeah, yeah. Ask us back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the whipping boys never really come back. But we'd always, we only ever got to the semis. But we got there twice, I think. Okay. But yeah, I'd, I'd play with, like, I know a bunch of Irish actors from, from the plays mostly. Um <laughs> who uh, who were really quite good footballers too? All right, okay. And they all uh, uh, David Wilmot was was one of them. Barry Ward, uh, who uh, okay. has done the Ken Loach film recently, yeah. really good proper footballers. So it'd be uh, oh yeah, oh, I miss it. Brilliant, Martin. What a pleasure. Thank cheers. you so much. That's lovely. Thank you. That's cheers. great. Thank you. And not a single. Eh. Uh, they're right. Uh, they're right. Yeah, no, they were, and it was, literally wasn't a repeated question. There you go. Okay, so that was Martin McDonough. Uh, let's get on to the reviews now. And should we start with Martin McDonough's film, the Golden Globe winning, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, a.k.a. What is it? The Billboards of Wrath? The Billboards of Wrath. The France. Billboards of Rage, yeah. Raging, Raging, Raging Billboards. billboards. <laughs> uh, which is what it should be called. And this is, a, for me, a phenomenal study of grief and loss and revenge and morality. Yeah, it's very, very, very It's also very funny. In a very dark way. Yeah. Like, as in the dialogue absolutely sizzled. Mm. And after watching this, I was like, no one can deliver an expletive quite like Francis McDormand. Some of the swearing in this is extraordinary. There's also a line involving a person called Penelope delivered by Peter Dinklage that is my favourite line reading (laughs) maybe ever. It is absolutely a thing of beauty. He's fantastic in it as well. It's really, really good. It's touching, it's heartbreaking, it's devastating, it's gruelling, it's funny. I mean, it's kind of everything. I have very few bad things to say about this film, actually. In fact, it's almost certainly going to be in my top five of this year, even though we saw it last year. 
frankly, if you haven't already gone and seen it, you're an idiot. Go and see it immediately. I mean, it literally hasn't come out yet. It's hardly an excuse, Helen. Um, Just to uh, summarise the plot for a moment, Frances McDormand plays a a grieving mother who has lost her daughter in violent, horrific circumstances. And she rents these three billboards outside the town of Ebbing, Missouri, where she lives, to um, publicise the fact that there have been no arrests made and, and no significant progress with the investigation into the killing whatsoever. And this is to sort of spur the local police chief, who's played by Woody Harrelson, into some kind of action and get him to do something. Um, uh, this obviously shakes things up that perhaps um, she might wish that had not been shaken up, or at least she doesn't mind, but other people wish had not been shaken up, um, causes him some amount of grief. Um, and uh, his deputy, Sam Rockwell, who pl- played by Sam Rockwell, who is a, a guy on the edge, trigger-tempered, extremely bad impulse control. A big old racist. And a big old racist um, deals with it extremely badly indeed and, and things... He from there. is extraordinary, isn't it? Rock he really Carl. is. But and I would say Woody Harrelson as well. I was about to say, yeah, I think it's a, it's a beautifully understated role from him. He plays it so softly and so well. Yeah. Um, also, uh, weirdly, I quite enjoyed Caleb Landry-Jones in this, and I rarely do. But I thought he was, it's a relatively small role, but I think he plays that very well. Yeah, yeah really good film. Uh, can't, can't recommend it I, enough. I did have some, a few issues with it. Yeah. Um, uh, people have pointed out that it's not a good film on race, and I think that's fair. Yeah, um, uh, Mark Bernardin wrote a really interesting piece this week. Uh, he's the co-host of Fat Man on Batman with Kevin Smith, really interesting writer. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a piece in The Guardian this week. Um, uh, he's African-American, Mark, and he wrote a piece about how he had issues with the with the film's treatment of, of race in the movie. And there's a uh, redemption Wells- arc that I would argue is quite yeah. controversial. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it could have been dealt with much better by yes, trying yes. not to be so hot button. I can see why people might have an issue with this movie, but it is really well acted. Yeah, I mean, McDonough's phenomenal. Yeah. phenomenal. Really well written. It is often funny, very, very funny, but it is also extraordinarily dark, but not as heavy as it sounds. Uh, so five stars for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Okay, let's move on then to Darkest Hour, the Joe Wright, Gary Oldman show. Uh, Winston Churchill's Finest hour? I think that's probably fair. This was um, this is an interesting companion piece actually to Dunkirk because this is essentially what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic while Ken Branagh and co were on the beaches. Um, so uh, this was literally Winston Churchill's pretty much his first week in office. So he came to he became prime minister. Um, something he'd worked for and wanted his entire life really, or certainly his entire political career. Um, at a moment when the almost the entire British army faced apparently certain defeat at the hands of the advancing Nazis who were coming through France at the time. Um, and their their backs were to the sea. They, they couldn't get their ships to them. They certainly couldn't get them fast enough to evacuate something like 300,000 men trapped on the beaches. And, um, and the entire British ruling class pretty much wanted to sue for peace. And Winston Churchill was almost alone in saying, well, you've seen it in the trailer. If you've seen the trailer, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when his, your head is in his mouth. Um, hmm. So hmm. that is essentially the, the setup. You, you've got a guy who's thrown into the toughest job in the world at the toughest time for that job ever. And uh, and obviously comes out of it smelling like, well, cigars and champagne, because I can't <laughs> imagine he ever smelled of anything else. But uh, came out of it much better than one had any reason to... And this is Churchill's darkest hour, but also his finest hour in many ways. Is this a, is it an interesting counterpoint to Churchill, which obviously casts him in a slightly less yeah. triumphant? Yes, light. It, it is. Well, that's sort of the end of the war, and him coming to sort of the end of his 
um, necessity, I guess. Yeah, this is all Operation Overlord, isn't it, Churchill? Yeah, so. this is, uh, yeah that is Operation yeah. Overlord and Churchill. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things about this film that I had an issue with. This is the third time we've been introduced to Churchill in the last 12 months or so via the medium of a new secretary coming in and him bullying her. And I feel like that's not something that we should have seen three times. That seems like overkill. He wasn't actually he actually had one secretary for most of his time in office, so it's it's bad in that sense. But just like there's gotta be another way. And 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 this film at least must have had time to see at least one of the others and should have maybe rethought that, I would have thought. Having said that, this is Gary Oldman in, as somebody described it today, God mode. Like, this is a fantastic performance from Gary Oldman. Unrecognisable, brilliant, brilliant, and very convincing and very natural prosthetics. Um, uh, literally pillow down his jumper, I assume. Um, <laughs> but he is, you know, he's really, really impressive as Churchill. You've got the likes of Kristen Scott Thomas and basically the cream of Britain's character actors around mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so phenomenal performances all around. I mean, it's it's an it's odd timing for this film. It's an it's odd to have had two films about essentially Dunkirk this year. Um, and I'm not sure that that says things I personally am very comfortable with about where this country's at at the moment. But <laughs> it is um, but it is a very, very good telling of a, of a very, you know, a, a great time for this guy and a and time of greatness for him. Are we saying Oldman over Cox and Lithgow? Yeah, yeah, easily. I mean, Lithgow was great, but... Um, and Cox actually, I mean, he was very... <laughs> he's very good. You're not going to usually bet against Brian Cox, but this is, this is a whole other level. What about Christian Slater? Churchill, The War Years, I have actually watched uh, years ago and it was um, not as funny as that should have been. So <laughs> That's, that's an understatement. Whereas this is exactly as funny as it should have been. All right, okay. And uh, really interestingly directed by Joe Wright as well. Lots of... Yeah. Because it's, it's not the boring old fuddy-duddy chamber piece that it could have been. No, I think he, he does his best to try and get Churchill out and about as much as possible. There is one scene which I don't think works for that there's an underground scene um, which you'll know as soon as you see it and you're yeah, like mm, yeah, yeah, yeah chinny reckon but otherwise <laughs> um, I think he, he he tries to show and he was a guy who moved around a lot who, who was very active even though he had a nap every afternoon he he you know he did a lot he went and saw a lot he didn't like to be just locked up in yeah. an office um, and and this kind of gets a little bit of that across and there's a little bit of the action obviously of, of Dunkirk and of, um, of Dover nearby or sorry of Calais nearby so you, you get out and about a little bit but um, but yeah it's it's a lot of parliamentary speeches as well but but the good ones so it's okay four stars four stars four stars in for Darkest Hour that's a cracking week it's, it's, good, good, it's a good time isn't it mm. we're getting a lot of good films three billboards and Darkest Hour nine stars between them that's four and a half each rounded up they're both five stars Amazing. Wait, no, what? That's not how we do it. That's how we do it. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's how we do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hey, someone wrote in saying that we hadn't reviewed Pitch Perfect 3. I have. No, but on the on the podcast. Oh, that's true. We hadn't really mentioned Pitch Perfect 3. So that's mentioned Pitch Perfect 3. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, yeah, it's it's fine. You didn't, you gave it two. I gave it two. I mean, you know, I, I yeah. felt it was like a high two or a low three, but it's more of a high yeah. two for me. Acatedious. It just it's just accolazy, really. No, it just feels like it's grasping for something it hasn't done before while trying to do all the things it's done before as well, and it, uh, that didn't entirely work for me. Um, and uh, there's just a couple of subplots that I thought were, were ridiculous and, and too far and too much. And, um, you know, the music was good, so I still like the music. The music's fine, made me laugh enough to forgive it all its little foibles, because it's a very, very lazy film. I mean... There's a, there's a really there's a kernel of a good idea in there for what it could have been, 
where you have the Elizabeth Banks and John Michael Higgins characters following the Bellas around the world trying to shoot a documentary. And it's just like, guys, that's the film. That's the yeah. film. And Whether the, the, it's a faux documentary we, or, or whatever. We, this is going to be the last one now. Yeah, yeah, this, this, this is, is yeah. in many ways. Well, the, they all die. The Bellas end. <laughs> no, this... this <laughs> Oh dear. I nearly trod on your amazing joke. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bella's end. Oh, oh my God. Lord. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but no, it, it actually is the end of a trilogy. It feels like the end of a trilogy. So I, I don't expect to see more of them. But it's just, it's, it's, it's about, they're trying to sell three or four different stories at once. And mm. it, I didn't think it I didn't enjoy the second one, if I'm honest with you. I think they never really recaptured the charm of the, of the original. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's something they do here. So two stars in for Pitch Perfect three, which is, uh, so if you do fancy going to see it, I thought I would probably have given it a low three because it entertained me enough. Yeah, but yeah, but also yeah. So there we go. Pitch Perfect 3. Uh, and that means that's it. We're done. We're done for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Lee Unkrich, director of Pixar's latest. Coco. Hooray. Uh, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from James. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. You know what I'm going to do, guys? I'm going to go to the first post and have a lovely drink. And maybe after that, I'll go to the old familiar. And maybe after that, <laughs> pop into the famous cock. Then maybe I might sneak in for a sneaky one at the cross hands, followed by, of course, a quick drink at the Good Companions maybe followed up with a trusty servant let's see how I'm feeling go the two-headed dog then the mermaid then the beehive stagger along to the king's head pop into the hole in the wall and then round the whole thing off at the end of the world the world's end Chris damn it you don't even drink and if you have that many Coke Zeros you'll be sick she's not wrong this is true but what if I have some Britvic I'll be bouncing up the walls (laughs) bouncing off the bloody walls. Go up to the barman and say I'll have a pint of the black stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Can't go wrong. All right. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. (laughs) 